Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. Who has their favorite passage that they found? Um, I don't really have a passage. It's kind of like a general theme about it. Well, I have a couple okay. passages, but the whole romance thing between Robert and... Epiclina? Yeah, I just thought it was kind of cheesy and didn't fit in with the like, rest of the novel. Like, it was just kind of thrown in for a flare. It could be. Wait, I didn't see them. Like, I mean, the relationship is important, them being out in the woods together and her not being human, and he was a human, but the whole, like, on page 48, it says that it's like, that doesn't surprise me, especially the way you've all you've been altering your body just to please me. Like, yeah. she's not doing it for him. Like, I just thought that some of the romance kind of things were just a little cheesy and not needed. It's a good one. What did you think? What did other people think about that? What, was there anything interesting about the romance thing that had a, that was, that you thought? I mean, it was unnecessary, but it was, I mean, I didn't mind it. It was interesting reading about, about them and how it was like, it was funny because he, like, they don't, they both didn't want to fall in love with each other. Like, I I feel like we're being forced to. But then at the end, they're like, ah, who cares? We just, we love each other, so. We're getting married, and I don't know, it's funny, though. It was funny, it wasn't, it didn't, like, ruin the book, I don't think. It just, maybe unnecessary. But. I think it was unnecessary. I don't know, what did you say? I think it was unnecessary. I mean, the reason given in the book was that she needed some reason to be able to... Being come like take command of, like the gorillas and have authority over the chimps, but they would follow her anyway, so it doesn't really like it wasn't really required. I mean, from most what's saying basically is marriage and birth rights have superiority over natural talent, which isn't really the direction I want to go. Because if you look back at like medieval Europe when birthright was, and like marriage was more important. Like they had a lot of rulers who didn't know their fun from their back. They wouldn't have had a ruler if they hit them in the ass, but like, and then nowadays we have rulers who may not be perfect, but they're better than that at least, because like they've had to work for their position, so they've had to show time, they've had to learn what they're doing, instead of just like having it given to them. It's kind of like saying by making them have to get married that it, no matter how far you go, how like whether you go to start anything, birth fight and marriage to campus for a lot. Okay, so there's some sort Jason, what do you think about the romance between Robert and Athena? Um well I think it's um I think it's it's there. Um, <laughs> I, you know, honestly, I really just sort of took it at face value. It didn't really think. I mean, it just it 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 made enough sense at the time. I didn't think twice about it. I mean, I thought it was kind of I thought it was kind of sad that Robert was so dense that he would like went off and slept with Lydia because it was kind of like you know she loves you. What are you doing? But um, I mean, other than that, I just. I, I didn't. It didn't really bother me in, in, intrinsically to the story that they were in love. Well, what what social? Why do you think David Brin might have put that in there? What social issue does it address? Inter 
interspecies dating. Like, kind of like the whole interracial marriage issue. Is that very much like the interracial marriage issue? And that is... Interspecies. <laughs> I mean... The, the, We're not the, 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 here. You see, the thing is, if there's a romance... Normally, people wouldn't react like a romance in every. No- there's, almost, there's a romance in almost every novel, so why even bring it up? And, but and I'm a fa- I was fascinated to actually hear people say they didn't think it was good. It shouldn't be there. Like it's always just like saying the sun shouldn't be out no, there. No, it, it wasn't. It was unnecessary. We didn't mind it being there. No, it was. It was just kind of like it was kind of like this. This novel is so. It's not on that plane. I mean, it's, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a kind of novel where you respect this romance. So it's not that there's a problem with Robert and Athelina. It's just kind of like, why? I mean, they're in the middle of the jungle fighting her existence. It, like this has no place. Like they're they're out, you know. Well, in those intense environments, don't you think that would be a possibility of forging relationships? Oh, definitely. definitely. Yeah. But what what kind of res- if you're reacting a little bit? What kind of resistance do you think other people might be feeling out there, with regard to because this is a different species, a different person, and about this idea about her making herself to be like human so that she would blend in, is that much different than what we see today? I mean, how many women try to make themselves? I mean, every week you hear on the news or. Not on the news necessarily, but on TV about the new like diet craze, and every woman goes to the store to buy the book or the new pill or whatever because they want to all look like the girls on the front of well, Cosmo. I'm on the Alcohol Judicial Council here in at Emory, and there's an issue with alcohol abuse in all major campuses in the country, going from the you know Harvard, Stanford, Berkeley, Yale. Emory, Duke, whatever. The, every major campus has got a countrywide alcohol abuse issue going on. And what we do is when students uh, drink and then have problems, they come before us and we counsel them and we tell them about what the, you know what we think they need to do and so on. But the interesting thing is that approximately 70% of the people that have alcohol abuse problems at these college campuses are white women. Uh, among at Emory, I've never seen an African American woman come before the council. I, that I doesn't necessarily mean that. No, it doesn't mean that, that they're not that there's no drinking, but I've just never seen it happen. Yeah, what's the they just don't take it as far. Not even that, but could be that, or it could be that, like from what I've seen, all of the. African Americans tend to form much closer to tight-knit groups, so they're more one they keep one other in check, but two they deal with this kind of thing within them rather than letting it out. Like no, we, we we deal with people that are found behind the bushes, passed no, out. Intravenous yeah, intravenous intervention is needed to keep them alive. Was that if you go like a tight knit community around you? They're not ever going to be left behind the bushes past that. Somebody's going to come take you. Okay, well, l- let me just give you a few more statistics that, that are interesting. About 70% are white women, and uh, African-American males, very rare that we ever get one. Uh, the next category that is after white women is white men, and then Asian men and Asian women. 
and uh, that means Indian from India as well as uh, uh, Southeast Asia. But when we ask what are they drinking, especially the white women, they say shots. They drink shots. And why not mixed drinks? Why not beer? Because mixed drinks and beer have more calories. Shots, you get it right into the system, you get it over with, and get it done with, you're drunk, and that's the end of it. And then we ask, well, how many shots are you talking about? And sometimes these shots go up to like near comatose levels, like eight, nine, ten shots, and they can tolerate it. They're used to doing that. And this issue of being sort of blend, the alcohol abuse issue is, is a, and this is a problem with all college campuses, not, Emory's absolutely no different than all the major college campuses. And then when we ask, but what is, why, why are you doing this? Why are you drinking at all? And they say, well, to be like everybody else, to blend in. This is what we, we do. There's the fraternities and the sororities, this is what they do in the weekends and so on. To be like everybody else. And then they, and then they say, oh, what is it, what's that? Again, I take issue with like blending with everybody else. A lot of people I know like just drink to because they like they get a bit and prepared. They enjoy like being able to go out and act more casual than they normally yeah. would. Like, I'm okay, well, where people would do it just because a lot of a lot of girls, my friends, will like especially when they get very very sick or end up passing out behind bushes and stuff. If you ask them why they kept drinking, it mm-hmm. was because a lot of girls feel like they can let their guard down and are much more, ca- like you said, casual and just easier to talk to. And they feel like they have to drink in order to be that way and have fun. Yeah, they have to in order to be what other people want them to be. And the issue of the shots is interesting because why shots? They want to get drunk just for the sake of getting drunk, not because they're particularly enjoying it. And they're doing shots so that they don't gain weight. They don't want to get the beer belly. They don't want to get the beer belly. So it's, again, doing what people want them to do. So when I was reading Athaclina, I, you know, she was transforming her whole body. And it was apparently difficult to do all that, to make herself look more human, to make herself look like everybody else blends in. And then when you realize that there are real differences between them, between Robert and Athaclina, I was saying, well, really, you're talking about very sim- great similarities between interracial groups, or groupings, or, or couples that happen in the United States, where there's real fundamental differences in the cultures, and people have to blend people have to bend, people have to change in order to do that. And I was fascinated by the fact that you objected to it, that you thought it was unnecessary, because then to me it's sort of saying, well, it looks like it might have struck a nerve. Maybe that's exactly why David Brin put it in there. Uh, that there's some, it's challenging on <coughs> a whole bunch of social levels. That raises the question I had. But go ahead, go ahead, Adol. I had to, like, reading this and thinking of lectures, I had the question that do all these authors actually, like, think this deep into the books because if this is true like if they put in all these things because they like hit these issues and everything then all the authors we've read so far are like some would be the like hugely superior social scientific minds they'd be like great like 
the autism says would be equal to, if not better, than the actual like certain scientists who don't the work there. And they, like a lot of authors, don't get social scientist degrees. So okay, so I'm you're not quite sure like how much the authors intended for all of the analysis, the depth and analysis we're putting onto these books. I don't. Yeah, I don't think they do. I mean, we were reading Dickens last semester, and like people have analyzed that book to depth, and I. And and our teacher even said, I there's a lot of things that are like stand out in Great Expectations that Dickens had no intention of standing out. He had it just stood out because I mean that's the point of these books because you can find connections that the authors might not have you know thought. All right, well there's there's two comments I might make on it. First of all, uh, David Brin comes from physics, astrophysics in particular. That's, that's his background. Yeah, and he's got a doctorate, so he's a he, he's a thinker. To begin with. Well, Secondly, we go ahead. Well, we just, he thinks in a physical science. Right? I have I have had a great deal of exposure dealing with physicists and mathematicians, and it is astounding how much of them, how many of them think uh, in terms of social stuff. Also, I would like to, to encourage you to think that they, as science fiction writers, are thinking out of the box to begin with. They are thinking differently. And it is true that sometimes they may incorporate something into their novels that they didn't consciously think about, but after it got in there, it makes sense from a cultural perspective. It's impossible for us to second guess whether it's one of those situations or whether they consciously put it in. When someone does put it in and they can perceive that there's a tension that they're addressing in society, it can show up and sometimes not be so conscious that they're doing that. On the other hand, sometimes it can be conscious. And we as readers can't make that decision that did they think about this consciously and put this in. All we can do is say it's there. It's there. I mean, when I was at Rutgers, as my as after I got my undergraduate degree in New Brunswick, New Jersey, at Rutgers, I was an English major, and my focus was on poetry. And just like you have said, we used to analyze, uh, you know, both the prose Dickens, but also I was deep into Renaissance poetry, Milton, uh, and also the Tweedledums and Tweedledees of Renaissance poetry, like Wyatt and Surrey and others, not just the Shakespeare's and so on. But we used to analyze those things to death, as you would say. And some of the students used to raise, just as you have legitimately raised, how much did the authors actually consciously think of when they put this in? For example, the rape of the Garden of Eden, when Satan enters, when the serpent enters the Garden of Eden, is described as a rape scene, with pubic hairs, the whole thing, in Milton's Paradise Lost. And he's in the garden is you know the <laughs> like the vagina and he's entering it and and it's uh, all types of you know sexual imagery is there and when the battle in heaven is going on it's one of the greatest uh, things of pornography I've ever written with you know phallic very blatant phallic symbols fecal matter being spewed out uh, it's 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 when you read it it can be sometimes thought of as gross this is paradise lost with Milton. Some people have even suggested that Milton is, is so uh, raucous in a variety of sense that it might not be appropriate to teach on a college campus. <laughs> now, the question is, when Milton wrote that huge treatise of Paradise Lost, it's a big poem, 
was he consciously thinking of absolutely everything? Well, you can't you can't second guess. You can't second guess. It's there, for whatever it's worth. It's there well, and uh, touches the scene. Go ahead. Well, there's another uh, poem like that that's shorter. Xanadu. Okay. Um, I, I believe is um, the poem, and it's just when you read it, it's like brutally obvious this is a very sexual poem. And, it, and it, it, I mean, on the surface, it's not. It's it's about you know this lost city of Xanadu. And when you read it, it's kind of like, whoa, that's that's a little raunchy there. But I mean, it's the same sort of thing. And thank you. Sir. You know, on one level, he may have. I mean, on one level, I'm sure the author thought of that. But then on another level, it's just people read so much into it that they take the metaphor even further than it was probably ever intended. Well, you know, I uh, I've, it's an there's an interesting thing. I also teach a course called Politics and Music, and in that course, I go through one time, uh, one thing where I compare Eminem's song uh, Stan with a poem by Sylvia Platt called Daddy and I show the there's a, 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 a riveting parallel between uh, Stan and Daddy and we go through the we go through the video and we read the lyrics and the the fatal the, the fatal father image stuff is an enormous number of Sexual dysfunctionality, latent homosexuality, suicidal—all there's an enormous number of parallels between the two things. And the question is, of course, did Eminem think all of this in advance when he put that, when he when he did that? And I made a comment in a book that I've written about the subject, about politics and music, and it was it was sent out for review. And one of the comments that came back from one of the reviewers said I was insulting the intelligence of of people by thinking that they may or may not have re- thought about it in a, you know consciously that they put all that stuff in there but I just thought it was a ridiculous comment because it's certainly not a insult to say that they may or may not have thought about it consciously but the reality is they they did put it in there and we are incapable of judging whether it was there on a conscious level or there on a subconscious level I tend to take things at face value, and that the stuff is in there, and that at some level the the artist or the <coughs> author knows that that stuff is there. And in a case like David Brin, he's a sure enough genius. I mean, he's a big shot. He's an astrophysicist. He knows his thing. He's, he's, he's written a ton of stuff, and. Um, you know, th- th- he's, his his work is often filled with very potent social commentary that you have to ferret out. It's a little bit more difficult sometimes to ferret out the social commentary that David Brin has. But anyway, I I just raise it to your attention that this may be one of those things that David Brin and that your your negative reaction to it may be exactly what he was addressing. Why would we be upset with uh, you know a handsome man getting romantically involved with an alien that? has two sets of breasts one of the breasts and can transform herself but the parallels to what she does is remarkable comparing you know trying to in terms of uh, adapting herself to be more human meaning what she perceives he might like it's it's a pathology of our own culture especially among women go ahead David Brin was also fascinated by like the idea that Robert was getting to be, you know, buff out in the wilderness. Like, towards the end of the book, just, he, his bronze olive skin was sheened with sweat, and just, like, 
just all this stuff about how he was like this incredible specimen of a man mm-hmm. and you were just kind of like wow we're laying it on a little thick and uh, I wasn't exactly sure what that was all about I mean I mean I mean, by the end of it it was just like I, I didn't I mean it would have been one thing if it was like an animal farm kind of ending and it was like you couldn't really tell the chimps from the men but no it was like Robert was standing out as this great specimen of a man and you just I didn't understand that Mm. In all seriousness, I mean, I, I am laughing about it because it was kind of funny, but I mean, in all seriousness. I think, I mean, they really wanted to show the distinction between men and chimps and gorillas and everything else. That he was yeah, really the superior being. There's, there's another aspect to it. I don't know how much time we want to spend on that, but there is another aspect to it, the physicality of humans. It's the physicality of life, the physicality of being a human, uh, being a, a life form. And the glory of being a life form, meaning we spend an awful lot of time romanticizing about our physical shapes, our physical bodies, and, and you just go to any store, you see magazine covers all over the place where the, it's, 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 uh, the physical, physical structure is a worship item, essentially, for humanity. And this, this component of being riveted to the or- one's organic nature, both in a sublime, uh, admiring sense, as well as the gross sense of having to take care of bodily functions. This sometimes can be omitted in a, a more widespread discussion that just it gets intellectual with regard to social substance or scientific substance. And some t- and in a, in, a, in a situation where they're talking about species and uplift, it's one way to connect yourself with what the nature, what's the identity of that of that species on a biological, organic, physical, essential nature. But we don't. I don't know how much we want to go into that. But I, I, I hear what you're saying. Let's let's ask about if there was a couple more issues that came up, and then I have something I want to raise. Go ahead. Anybody else come up with a passage that they thought was unusual or strange or whatever? Um, it wasn't. Well, it was kind of unusual. On page uh, sixty-six. Sixty-six. Um, he says, uh, "Is that the basic reason why I'm attracted to Atheclina? Atheclina. Symbolically, she is the elder, the more knowledgeable one. It gives me an opportunity to be awkward and stumble and enjoy the role. Because I think right before he was talking about how, you know, he had like an easy transition from adolescence and he like had no problems and a lot of a lot of his peers like struggled and they had to adjust, but he had like an easy transition and." He was kind of upset about that because he never really got a chance to like adjust and learn mm-hmm. and struggle. He just was like this this rare person who just easily transitioned, had no okay. problems. All right. So it was like interesting that he would he was enjoying the fact that he was inferior, and you know it would be odd for a human being to say that, be- being the most superior beings on the planet and this and that. So I was like, that's a little bit interesting that he was enjoying the fact that. I mean, she was superior to him, and she could adapt, and she had this power and stuff. So, hmm. well, that was, I was that, that was interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, I like uh, the scene later on. What's that? I like the scene later on on page uh, four twenty six. Four twenty six. It's when uh, it's when Gala and Fibbin are in uh, are in prison, and Sylvie oh. helps them escape. Yeah. And there was this giant discussion about cards. Yeah, white cards. White cards, blue cards, <laughs> green cards. And it was just, I thought it was really interesting that in a, in a species that's, that's working on genetic evolution, or, or genetic, uh, or, or it's working towards uplift, towards being a you know, yeah. sapient species, 
then all of a sudden things that don't take such precedent in human affairs, like you don't pick the person that you marry or the person that you mate with if you're a human based on, you know, what their what their, you know, reproductive status is or what their, you know, social reproductive uh, status let, is. Let me let me engage this a little bit. If you let's start with birds first. Weaver birds, for example. Male weaver birds, there's a little they're like like parakeet type orange orange, blue, greenish covers colors in the tropics they build these little nests the male weaver birds build these nests and they build like four or five of them and then they try to attract a female and then the female comes and and the weaver bird stands by the nest the male one waiting for a female then the the female will come and sort of see how it did did he he build a good nest does he look like he's you know did did his job and then if uh, she looks like she has some second thoughts he flops over to the next nest and says well what do you think about this one (laughs) And then she looks at that nest to see if he's up to snuff. And in a very real sense, the weaver birds, the female weaver birds, are evaluating the potential. Maybe not on a conscious intellectual level, but they're evaluating somehow the potency of the of the male weaver bird to, you know, reproduce and produce good offspring. They have done lots of studies that there is a great deal when women choose men and when men choose women different things go on actually but when women choose men they often look at not always but they often look at what does he bring to the table is he someone that can protect in some type of deep genetic sense protect the family and I'm you know pardon me that's so true Uh, support the family protect the family Is is he a deadbeat that is not going to be able to keep a job Drunken, alcoholic, uh, drug use, whatever, uh, irresponsible, doesn't care about paying bills, whatever. Or is the person pre-law, going to be a doctor, going to become a professor, you know, is the person a go-getter? And when you have those strong personality traits, women are attracted to that. And it seems to be an an, an innate um, genetic understanding of the female across all species and male interaction if the male is going to be a dead weight they can somehow detect that similarly with men they have done lots of studies men seem to have some type of uh, and I'm not talking human men I'm just talking about men men meaning birds rats rabbits you know things have some of uh, have some interest, whether it's conscious or subconscious or genetic or whatever, in in perceiving whether that female will reproduce his line, be a you know a productive reproduction thing, whatever. And it, it, it is we, humanity and scientists have never sorted out exactly what it is whether it's genetic on the male and female side or whether it's conscious on the male or female side or whether it's cultural on the male or female side or whether it's just something that the parents drilled into them or it comes across through the TV or whatever but there does seem to be an evaluation process that you don't just fall in love with someone because they're there they just happen to be there at the right time and that's who it is there's some type of process going on and when David Brin talks about this with Sylvie saying Fibbins got a white card he's going to be a white card he's got, he's got the genes and I want my kid to have those genes 
Do you know how many women have been impregnated with the sperm of Nobel Prize winners? There's actually a group of people that went around and collected sperm samples from Nobel Prize winners because they thought it would be a great way to produce a super race. You know, I mean, a great way to produce super babies. And they actually, and a whole bunch of Nobel Prize winners actually donated their sperm to these sperm banks that, that do this. And there are women who actually try to get those sperms in particular. Now, now I know, Jason, it may seem like this is different from our normal experience. You date a woman because you just happened to bump into her at the post office and some sparks flew and in commonality and stuff like that. But the reality is it's a very comp- the dating game is exceptionally complex. And one of the interesting things that you might consider that David Brin put into this is how blatant he put it into it. Rather than sort of being subtle about it, he said, you've got a white card. I want my babies to have that white card. I know, but he was just like, it was, just, it was, really, it was really blatant, but then it was also kind of like, I don't know. Part, well, I mean, part of it had a lot to do with the fact that Neo Shim's married in groups. So, like, it was not a monogamous relationship. So, whereas, you know, Galen probably would have pitched more of a fit if she knew that, like, she could never have him back. But, I mean, I, I think it was kind of like, you know, Jim still plays the same uh, level of importance on monogamy that mm-hmm. humans do. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, I just thought it was kind of strange, though, because it was basically, you know, I want your body, I want your sperm. Yeah, it was so blatant. And I'm not even going to discuss it with you. I'm going to discuss it with this woman here that you're hanging out (laughs) with that you have no relationship to. And then when she says it's all right, you and I will leave because you'll screw a goat or a leaf or anything else that presents itself. It was it was kind of brutal. Not going to lie. Yeah, he was. He was. David Brin was was talking about the male sexuality in a very gross way. Like you're just. you're nothing but a goat. Yeah, you're just going to do it for the sake of doing it, whatever there's there. He took that opinion the whole book, though. Like when when uh, Shelby for or when uh, when whoever it was for Gaelic first came on to him outside of the ape's grape or whatever, and was like pink, and then like all throughout the book, guys are portrayed as just like and Robert leaving Athelina to go sleep with Lydia. You just like the whole book is portrayed as like guys just go screw anything. And this this man, he's not defending the male well, sex. that's kind of almost a thing in society. Like, I mean, that's what... Ouch! 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 Go on this campus and ask any girl who's ever been cheated on by a guy if she doesn't think that guys will sleep with any girl that throws herself at them. Hey, hey, hey. That's so, not no, true, no, girl. Not, I know it's a stereotype, but it's true. But like the whole, the whole women thing of women just want money and... Because you're not talking about how, like, they look at the nests and... Males look at the body more physical aspect because that's why like women are attracted to doctors and men are attracted to models. I think because we care yeah. about the. No, I'm not. Saying I mean, it's true. I mean, you're right. I mean, I'm not a lie, but I mean, it's true. A lot of that may be cultural, and a lot of that is is changing because in the old days, for example, when my father and mother got married, my father wanted my mother to stay at home, and that's what he thought was that was his perfect idea of a woman to stay at home. And he was willing to tolerate her to be a primary school English teacher, like first grade, some second grade, you know, just a, a teacher, a primary school teacher. And at best, maybe an English teacher in a high school, at, at the most, and that's top-ending it. But she didn't want to do that. She wanted to be an author. She wanted to be a newspaper writer. She wanted to be a playwright and a novelist. That eventually ended up them going different ways, getting a divorce and so on. 
because that's what she just had to do. She had to write. And in fact, she ended up being a very great writer. She was a journalist, newspaper, magazine writer, uh, wrote many articles in the New York Times and the Jersey Journal. That was what she did. she did. But my father did not find that attractive. He did not find that attractive. But there were other men that she dated later on who did find that enormously attractive, that she was the thinker, that you could think and you could talk and you could have a conversation with her and talk Kant, Rousseau, whatever, you know, the, the French intellectualism of the 18th, you know, the, whatever, then she, she, she could do that. And then uh, I remember that some of the men that she dated later, she, uh, they, they burned off on that right away. They said, "Oh no, this is crazy. I'm not. This, this is this woman's got too much of a brain." And others, other men thought that was really attractive. So there may be a lot of cultural. Yeah, yeah, you're right. There may be a lot of cultural stuff, and it may be changing a lot. For example, Samantha Carter is a sex object in Stargate. She's you know sexy, sexy lady, but she's also at the same time portrayed as like the brain of the planet, the planetary genius that's protecting humanity because she can yeah, figure out anything. Daniel. Go ahead. It'd probably be Daniel Carter over Samantha. Daniel Jackson over Samantha Carter, you know, because he's the one who normally comes up with the way to save them all. She's just the. Well, she comes up with she comes up with technological fixes. He comes up with cultural, linguistic, figuring out what the ancients said in the language type fixes. In the end, though, it's normally the ancient fixes that save the day over the human fixes. Oh, well, of course, well, not necessarily. I humans know. are frail in the in the wide scope of the galaxy. But you know what show is bad about that? Farscape. Claudia Black used to wear scandalously tight outfits. She still wears those outfits. That's, the That's just her, though, I think. <laughs> oh. No, no. She's, she's back in... She's back in uh, uh, is it Stargate she's back in? Sometimes? I think she's in Stargate Atlantis now. Yeah. But oh, no, I, it's the other one. Stargate is one she appears in every once in a while. Oh, well, well go I, ahead. But, I mean, but I mean, just in Farscape, it was like, no one ever claimed that she had brains. She was just good at killing people. And then, by the way, she wore black spandex to do it. It was just... And did you see uh, Dark Angel? Which was this show with Jessica Alba that was a few years? Yeah. It was like, yeah. oh, and it, was, it was by James Cameron. Great show, man. <laughs> she she was always dressed in skin tight black leather, and she yeah. rode this big. Well, she rode this big motorcycle, and it was just like. Would men watch the show? She was dressed in baggy pants and a flannel shirt. Well, no, that's, that's the point. The point is, but I mean, this is Hollywood. This is this is Hollywood. Have you noticed how many movies have like women assassins now? These hot women who like kill Terminator, people. Terminator, the latest Terminator, the and like all these Mr. Smith. Mr. Oh. Mrs. Smith, and like all these movies. It's like, I, yeah, women would make the perfect assassins. I'm sorry, <laughs> definitely. But I mean, it's just it's it's like I mean, like getting back. So to things this. are changing. Things, things are changing. Things Before it was like this. Big, strong, six-pack man no, would be a perfect assassin. Now it's like you know, I'm, I'm in the front lines of this type of thing because I, my real, my real specialty is mathematical modeling, nonlinear mathematical modeling, and I try to convince people to do it. Among people who go into math, uh, a lot of them are men that go into math with an orientation to getting into getting into technology firms and so on like that, and I. And, but there are a huge number of women who are interested in math and actually want to get degrees, but they they don't know exactly how how they would what they would use it for. How they would they would would they end up being in a male dominated technology company? And what I try to convince them is that if they get a say one of our we're, Emory is one, is the only I believe it's the only uh, university perhaps on the planet, but perhaps in the country that has a joint major in math and political science, a joint major. So we really emphasize the, the math and political science combination. And I tell them if they, if they get a degree, male or female, but let's just talk about the women for now. If they get a, a degree in, a joint degree in math and political science, they 
have the potential to become absolute planetary stel- you know, s- stellar stars in, as political science professors, that they could get into the best graduate schools, become faculty members at the very best graduate schools, their level of mathematics expertise would far exceed in terms of formal courses, you know, nearly all political scientists, and that that's where the real need is in political science. And the jobs are endless, and the pay is great, and the time off is spectacular for doing research and so on. And so I'm really on the front ends, of, on the front lines of, of convincing women that this is, this is a, men or women, but with, with regard to women, that this is the time to change the stereotypes and change the culture. And if there's, a, if there's ever a time to use your brain and become a planetary superstar that can you know, fundamentally change the world, if you like math, and there are tons of women that like math, they just, need, they just need to know that there are career opportunities that are unprejudiced and open to them. That's something that, you know, that's one area. So I deal with this all the time on the level of changing cultures. That's interesting. Well, look, um, did you have any other ideas? Otherwise, I've got an idea I wanted to raise as well. These are interesting ideas you're bringing up. Just the resortion of the Bergman to chemical warfare. Like at the beginning, they started to gas people. Yes, chemical them. warfare. That was interesting. Go ahead. Like at the very beginning, when they took over the planet, they gassed anywhere they thought that humans could be living. Mm-hmm. So they'd have to come to like the camps to be treated, and they'd have to be continuously treated. So there was like they cut off the humans straight up, and then like the one like right now we find chemical warfare totally and utterly despicable. Like it's one of the three WMDs. And later on, at the very end, like when the suzerain of Beam and Talon went crazy, he was willing to unleash weapons of mass destruction on like the just like a small valley of that had a couple of human remains in it. Like he, be, like he was pushed to the point that he didn't care anymore, and he was willing to launch these things at them, despite the going totally against like the way of thinking of his species and everything. You know, I'm glad you raised this point. the the issue The issue of weapons of mass destruction. We started out with gas warfare by the Subaru, oh the Gubru, the Gubru, <laughs> and uh, the, the using gas to uh, to uh, attack the humans first. And that, of course, brought into mind uh, gas attacks that had been used by, say, Saddam Hussein, for example, had used it. You know that Saddam Hussein was the largest purchaser on record of, this is way back when, of snowblowers. <laughs> and, and you can sort of say, well, what do you need snowblowers for in Iraq? Well, that was in the old days when the one of the things that they were doing is when you get biological and you know, chemical weapons, you had to put it into the air. You want to make sure it flows in the right direction. <laughs> so you had to be able to deliver it somehow. So you wait until winds, is, winds are favorable and you have to throw it up into the air. Okay, and then um, then we get into the end of the book where the Gubru were between a rock and a hard place and the leadership started to go crazy. What does that remind you of in terms of real life history? What, what, what are some instances where weapons of mass destruction were a last, a last, a last desperate attempt of some leaderships, just to destroy. 
is a very real issue when people get in power and start and, and for for unsavory you know using unsavory means to begin with they fight like tooth and nail to the end because they know the jig is up let's use some example what about Hitler what was Hitler's approach everybody that's not like you Except, what's it? Mm-hmm. Hitler was a strange example because he like idealized the perfect German man, like oh. blonde hair, blue eyed. Hitler himself was a small, mousy. His mom was Jewish. What was he trying to do to the very end, though? Why about Jews? No, the very end. Keep fighting. What was his weapon of mass destruction? He was he seeking. Wanted. Pardon me. He wanted like rockets. The Holy Grail. Which was what? Oh, I was just thinking about Indiana Jones. Oh no, there was a there was a weapon he was going after, and they were they were ferociously trying to get it in time. Nukes. They were within two months of having it. What? Nukes. Nukes. Yes, nuclear weapons. They were within two or three months of having it before Patton bashed his way in. They were within just a couple months. It was tooth and nail. I mean, it was it was down to the wire. Were they going to get it? And and Hitler wanted it desperately, wanted it. And he had a delivery vehicle for it. And he was hoping that that would be the way that he would... He was using technological advances, and at the very end, just to be able to destroy whatever was left. To destroy his enemies. As he perceived them. But, um... Well, I mean, you could, you could say in, in some way... I mean, the U.S. did that, too, at the end of World War Two. I mean... Well, we did with the Japanese. Well, I know, but I mean, but, I mean it got to the end of World War Two, and we ended it with a weapon of mass destruction. I mean, no one would claim that a pair of nuclear weapons are not... No, but the issue with us was totally different. We were not after world conquest, and we were not after destroying them. In both those cases where we dropped it on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, pamphlets were dropped, warnings were dropped, uh, and the alternative was a a full-scale invasion on the island. And, you know, it it, it, it certainly was... But Hitler, had he had weapons of mass destruction, had he had nukes... There goes, there goes I mean, London, there goes yeah. New York. He was trying to go out in a blaze of glory. I mean, yeah, I America wasn't behind. America wasn't losing the war. Well, I mean, I know what you mean. The U.S. the U.S. would have been safe from nukes, from Hitler, because they didn't have the delivery system. I mean, even up to the Cold War, the big, the big joke was no, that Russia didn't have the delivery system to pinpoint. You can't, you can't cross out the the ingenuity that someone might have come up with putting it on one of those small little U-2 uh, one of those little s- submarines that they had and just mm-hmm. pushing it right into New York Harbor you never really can tell but let's let's think about some other cases what about Saddam Hussein what happened with him when his invasion of Kuwait how when it, when, when it looked like the jig was up and he had to leave when Desert Storm was Didn't going on break out nerve gas or something there were gas attacks but what was the major thing it was environmental Oh, burn the wells. Not only burn them, blew them up. Well, blew them destroyed up. Destroyed the infrastructure. It was one of the greatest planetary ecological disasters ever. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had oil streaks going all the way across the Gulf. It was just horrific. And you could have a, you could see the smoke when you're in the space shuttle looking yeah. down. You could see the ring like a donut of smoke going around the entire planet of the stuff that was coming out the, out of the out of the out of the Kuwait oil wells there that were burning. The, uh, there was an amazing scene. Did you see Jarhead? Anthony Swafford. That, uh, I, I don't recall it, but yeah, well, I, there was a time when I saw it, but for some reason, it, go but ahead. I mean, it just it just had the most incredible scene. It was really bad movie, exaggerated everything that happened to this man. But there was this amazing scene where they're wandering through the desert after the Iraqis have pulled out of Kuwait, and it's just like these huge, you know, plumes of oil that have been ignited and are yeah. just. 
Yeah, and I remember now. I remember reading about the uh, and seeing a History Channel special about how difficult it was to recap all those. Yeah. And they had to hire a crew that went through there, and they got paid amazingly. I mean, because yeah. it was hazardous. Yeah, very hazardous. And, I mean, they just made amazing money doing this, but, I mean, it was one of the most difficult things that, they, that they'd ever done as a crew yeah. to okay. cap these things. Now, what happened during the... When Yugoslavia broke up, when we had Serbia attacking, doing ethnic cleansing in uh, in Kosovo and uh, Bosnia and so on like that, what was happening when the jig was up and they started to leave? And they started to run into problems? How did they leave? Did they just pack their bags up and go? No. I don't remember what they did to them, though. Killing goes on in mass when the people get panicky. When mass genocide. That's mass when you start getting mass. That's when you start getting genocide. What happened in, in Rwanda when you had the Hutus uh, go on a, a, on a berserk situation and start killing Tutsis and moderate Hutus? And you had, in a period of two months, 800,000 people macheted to death. And when the invasion forces started to come in, when the and 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 the Hutus looked like they were going to die, I mean they were going to lose. Did they just sort of say, "Okay, the jig is up, we stop"? No. It got worse and worse. Panic set in. It got more extreme. Killed more people, and they became crazy. So this thing of the suzerain of the guru, that actually shows a very real characteristic of humanity. When you have very aggressive leaders and they start to lose, it not only is bad when they go into the warfare situation and start killing people, trying to conquer and and so on, but when they start to lose, they don't sort of say, oh, the jig is up, I lost, oh, that was a good try. It gets worse as you go on. And so it, it becomes a significant level of implications with regard to what, if you are the enemy, if you are the person that's battling them, or if you're the group that's battling them, you have to consider that in your battle plan. You have to say if they're going nuts, and if you call, David Brin does does have they they do talk about that. Athena does talk about it. Robert talks about it. what happens if the <coughs> suzerain goes crazy. What if what happens if the guru goes crazy? What if they start doing crazy things? Remember they start debating that near the end of the novel. And so what happens if the person goes crazy? They're losing, and you know, people are turning against them, and they're having troubles out there in the galaxy. What happens if they go crazy and they start to start killing people? That's actually a very real aspect of of human battling. When people fight, they fight to the death sometimes, and the more irrational they are in the beginning, the more irrational they become at the end. I'm glad you raised that point. It's a very interesting. Well, look, can I raise a different point? Completely different. I would like to raise something by Edward O. Wilson for the next few minutes. Listen to this. Edward O. Wilson is a professor at Harvard in biology, and his claim to fame is in the studying of evolution. He has studied ants to a great extent, but in general he has made tremendous impacts in examining evolution and examining humanity's role in evolution. Now, he's written many books, of course, and he's actually been on our campus, Emory's campus, a number of times, giving giving talks. But in this one case, I'd like to talk about an article he wrote in the New York Times Magazine, dated May 30th, 1993. 
May 30th, 1993, the New York Times Magazine. And it's a cover article, and the name of the article is, Is Humanity Suicidal? We're Flirting with, our, with the Extinction of Our Species, by Edward O. Wilson. Let me summarize some aspects of this. I'll read a couple paragraphs, but let me summarize some aspects. He starts out with the idea, which is a very appropriate, very appropriate for a course on science fiction and politics. He says, imagine that you are an extraterrestrial species and you are interested in your neighbors because your neighbors could be hostile or they could be friendly and that the genes of those neighbors will make a big deal of difference as to whether they are going to be hostile or friendly. Now, your neighborhood may be okay now, but you're concerned about what evolves in the neighborhood over the millennia, over the millions of years. So what you do is you send out robotic probes that plant themselves on satellites in solar systems all around your local neighborhood of the galaxy. And the robotic probes wake up every 100,000 years and take snapshots and sort out what's going on in the solar system. And what they're really concerned about is the crisis of evolution, the changes, the shifts. For example, when does life actually start? On what planets? And then when life actually starts, the robotic probes go back to sleep and wake up again 100,000 years for a few minutes and then go back to sleep. When life actually starts, then the real concern is saying, well, there is going to be a Darwinian level of evolution meaning species are going to evolve, are going to evolve, are going to evolve no matter what. And at some point, just like one species will learn that there is a genetic advantage to standing upright, another species will learn that there's a genetic advantage to having big teeth, another species will find that there's a genetic advantage to having four legs or to having a certain type of fin structure or a certain type of breathing apparatus, whatever. But eventually, one species will, through the genetic random luck of the draw, will sort out that the, there is a genetic advantage to brain size, to intelligence. And then what the aliens are assuming is that intelligence will evolve just like all other aspects of evolution create physical manifestations intelligence will evolve with a 100% certainty eventually in some species and then what the what Edward O. Wilson is saying about that alien civilization what they're interested in is what that species eats because by knowing what that species eats they'll know whether that species is going to be a hostile neighbor or a friendly neighbor and now you can sort of say, well, what in the world can you mean by that, what that species eats? Well, you see, according to Edward O. Wilson, if that species happens to be an insect species, and there's no reason why it couldn't happen, or let's say an herbivore species, a cow, an intelligent cow-type creature, a plant-eating creature, then Edward O. Wilson is saying that species is going to most likely be a more peaceful neighbor than 
the uh, then a meat-eating species. And then if it's a meat-eating species, like a lion or a mammal that eats meat or a dinosaur that eats meat, then that is going to be a more aggressive, hostile species. Well, what do you say about Why is that happening? Well, it's a very interesting thing, you see. In order for a hawk to eat a rabbit or to eat a rodent, a lot of sun's energy needs to be used. You see, when you're high up in the food chain and you're eating a rodent or a rabbit, well, what happens is first photosynthesis occurred, plants absorbed sun's energy. Everything here is sun stuff. Every, every, all life is simply stored solar energy of some form. So plants absorbed solar energy, became green, and a bug came along, a grasshopper, and ate that plant. Well, another bug comes, another bug comes along and eats that grasshopper. And then another rodent comes along and eats that bug. And then finally, uh, a hawk comes along and eats the rodent. Well, by the time you get to the... I'm sorry, go ahead. At every level, you either get 10% to go to the next level. Yeah, that's exactly. You, you, you retain only 10% of the solar energy for with each level of consumption. Exactly right. You know the rule, of, of, you know the rule of, um, of ecology in that regard, which is great. You retain 10% of the sun's energy. So, when you eat the plant you only get 10% of the solar energy from the plant. And when you eat the bug that ate the plant, you only get 10% of whatever that 10% is left. So 1%. And you're down to 1%. And then if you eat that thing, then you're down to you know one-tenth of that. Yeah. So it keeps shrinking. Well, the thing is, if the species is a meat-eating species, you've got to consume an awful lot of planetary resources in order to feed yourself. So, so you're assuming by that that the carnivore species would come on a wall of ex- would come with positive expansion so they could get more resources while a herbivore species would because they don't have to consume so many of their own resources um, not, be, not be required to do that but by modern scientific standards that doesn't that argument doesn't hold because we have the ability now to synthesize like all the resources we need for okay. Well, actually, he covers that. Let, let's let me let me lay out the steps a little bit further, but, and then we'll get to the issue of whether we can change it in the in in the future. But the the, the basic argument still. Let me lay lay out a couple more points. When we are an inefficient user of the solar energy of the sun's energy and we simultaneously have intelligence. Whatever species develops intelligence will win the evolutionary battle, will control all other species on the planet. If that species is an insect that de- develops intelligence, or a mammal, or a reptile, or a, or a gubru, or whatever it is, that species will win against all other species, because that gives it an, an, an edge over all of the species to be able to control. Now. If the <coughs> if it's a meat-eating species, the species will rapidly start to destroy the environment in order to create resources for its food. At some point, though, this gets to what you're talking about, although your 
ability with your intellect is going to produce an ability to say, hey, we can't keep doing this, otherwise we will destroy our very planet. We have to change, because that's what intelligence is all about. What Edward O. Wilson argues, however, is that there is a juggernaut. I call it the juggernaut theory of evolution. Edward O. Wilson's juggernaut theory of evolution. And that is, for a species to change from one of rapid destruction of the environment to control the human, to, to control all resources, to change from that to becoming a planetary protector, to protect the environment for the long term, for the species to go through it, takes a window of time. You can't do it overnight. Too many people are ordinary. Look at our situation right now with global warming right at our heels. We're burning ourselves off this planet as fast as could be. We're consuming resources at unprecedented rates. Well, for sure we're going to change, but there's a window of time. If you are a meat-eating species, by your own genetic nature, that window of time is shorter because you consume more resources. You consume a lot of resources. However, I guess so. Let me just finish. If you're an herbivore species, by your own genetic nature, you use the resources more slowly. Every species with intelligence will have a window of time. But an herbivore species will have a longer window of time because they're going to destroy the environment for sure, but it will take a longer period of time because they need fewer resources. With a longer period of time, they have a chance to get through the juggernaut and to actually get their species to the other side of the juggernaut and say, I think we can fix this now and become planetary protectors rather than planetary destroyers. Now, Otto, you were going to say something. You're counting on like the... The intelligent reasoning to win through, but against that, like you've got the thousand upon thousand years of natural evolution that people don't want to accept that it's changing. Like at the moment, like we've got all the scientific evidence that there's a problem, but nobody wants to face up to it. Like all of the treaty talks are supposed to deal with this. Actually, let me let me chime in here with regard to Edward O. Wilson. He would 100% agree with you. He would say, in fact, that's exactly part of his argument, that there is a, a huge level of time, you're talking millions of years, of genetic hardwired programming to get that species to be that way. Because the Darwinian march of evolution is such that those species, those individuals that compete against their fellow individuals and other species better win the Darwinian march. They survive and the other ones die off. So those species that develop individuals that say, what's most important is one in front of what is in front of my face. Secondly, what's in front of my family. Thirdly, what's in front of my village. And a very distant fourth, what's good for the world. Those are the individuals, selfish individuals, that survived the Darwinian march, the evolutionary march. And that's millions and millions and millions of years of hardwired genetic evolution that's programmed people to think like that. And then suddenly, within a period of 150 to 300 years, you've got to change it completely. You've got to erase, wipe out millions of years of genetic hardwired evolution, of way of thinking and have intelligence take over and say, I'm not going to think selfishly anymore. I'm going to protect the planet. 
Edward O. Wilson would agree with you absolutely, completely, of how you can do it. The only thing he is arguing is, how long will it take to do that transition? And do we have enough time? He ultimately concludes that he doesn't know. He likes to come out on the positive side of things. But the reality is, he just simply doesn't know. We're sort of a middle... How long is the lion's intestine? It's a meat-eating intestine. It's about 10 feet or something, isn't it? It's not very long. How long is a cow's intestine? Miles. It's a long thing. Plus, it's got two stomachs. It, you know, it's hard to digest all that grass. I mean, and it spits it up and chews it and brings it back down and spits it back up and chews it and brings it back down. It's a big deal. They spend all day eating those cows. Well, what about our intestine? What's that? Isn't it 18 feet or something? It's We're sort of in between the cow and the lion. Yeah. So we could be, I'm a vegetarian. We could be, we can live on vegetarian. I don't eat meat, chicken, you know. If, if it walks around, I don't put it in my mouth. But the, uh, uh, and I survive very healthfully. There's a whole country of India out there, vegetarians. They're doing fine and the population is growing, last I heard. Vegetarians are actually becoming uh, quite widespread because of the inavailability of meat. Just inavailability, especially in places like China, they just can't get it. So vegetarianism is growing just because of things like that. Similarly, you can also survive on beef, on meat. You can survive. So we're, in a, we're a species that genetically is sort of in the middle. We can go either way. And so Edward O. Wilson is really saying, you know, which... You know which way which way will it go? Now, how does this compare to the novel? What are we talking about with regard to this Edward O. Wilson's view and the novel? <clears throat> how does that connect to David Brin and the uplift work? When he describes the planet as like a very delicate ecosystem balance. Absolutely, a very delicate ecosystem. In fact, that particular planet of Garth, its environment was totally destroyed by one species. So on that level, he's talking about that, okay. And that was interesting. It was a species that was uplifted, right, that did it? What's the word? They recessed back to their primitive kind of... They regressed. What kind of evolution are we talking about? Natural evolution? Forced. Forced evolution. So in that sense, we had a situation of humanity, or actually galactic society, deciding to play God and force evolution on a species. And then what did that species do? It got to the juggernaut, and it just wiped itself out. It just went crazy. Forced evolution didn't work. With natural evolution, you have the ability over millions and millions and millions and millions of years to make mistakes in species burn out by natural but suddenly you have a species that's been artificially uplifted and you don't have the mistakes burning out quickly with little brush evolutionary brush fires you suddenly put them in the capable spot of being able to control the entire planet just like we are able to control the entire planet but if there's a flaw that wasn't weeded out through the trial and error process of millions of years of evolution if there's a flaw, that species can take over the entire planet and wipe out the entire planet. Isn't that interesting? This speaks very pregnantly to the idea of 
whether humans are capable of short-circuiting natural evolution and can take and take control of the evolutionary march ourselves whether our intellect is sufficiently strong that we can say nature be damned we are god now we will now take care of our evolutionary we can design anything it's a what's that the question is not whether we can because we can the question is do we want to well, you know, um, Edward O. Wilson is very, uh, very interesting in this regard. He describes he describes two ways of looking at it. It's not he, he, until he would differ from you in saying it's not whether we can, but whether we want to. He would differ from that. He would say that there are two types of people. One are called environmentalists that say no, we cannot do it. We cannot use our intellect, our puny brains, and think that we can actually control all of the quadzillions of genetic manipulations that are necessary in order to <laughs> uplift, uh, in order to control the evolutionary, uh, the evolution of the planet. Go ahead, Angel. Um, I don't know. Like, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we have the intellectual capability. I'm saying it's a moral decision whether we can or not, because already we've done. Genetic manipulation on the lab rats. So we have one yes. piece of lab rat that is now used in every laboratory across the entire world. Be- like because it makes our experiments repeatable and makes them standard. Yes. But we have, like, not uplifted. Not that uplift will be in. We, we are in the labs doing genetic manipulations now. You're correct. So we've got, like, that. The uplift would be more difficult. But eventually we'd reach that point. But we have the present ability that we ha- can and have, like altered, like irrevocably, the genetic makeup okay. of the species. Now you're speaking like the other group that Edward O. Wilson talks about. The first is the environmentalists that say it's way too complicated. The natural biosystem controls too many things that we and our intellect are not capable of handling. The other group now is what you're talking about. They're called the exemptionalists from Edward O. Wilson's point of view. And the exemptional will, uh, the exemptionalists say, we have conquered all of the things in the past. We succeeded with World War One, World War Two. We created the automobile. We got nuclear power. We, you know, any challenge that we face, we can solve. The only thing that the environmentalists need to do is get out of our way, so that we can just, you know, a- a- address this thing with technology. And. The environmentalists are saying that's a very arrogant way of thinking, that you can actually do stuff, when in fact you've got only one planet to play with, and if you're wrong and you mess it up, that's the end of humanity. You can't screw around like that. You've got no plan B. That's a very foolish way to think, to as an exemptionalist. And the exemptionalists come in and say, don't step on the brakes, let us keep going, just do not interfere. And there's that growth. There's that. I'm sorry, go ahead. I definitely think we should step on the brakes, but I'm saying that, like, the exemptionists are wrong in the fact that they're saying that we should just keep progressing for progress's sake. That's not right. You have, when you progress, you have to have a end, like, a direction and end goal in sight. If we just, like, we have, intellect gives us the ability to branch out into any number of parts, any number of choices, but if we just branch out, or branching out, say, for we try and get nowhere, we just want to know everything, then we're going to like 
burn ourselves out. We're going to destroy all our resources, okay. destroy the planet. Ando, we're running out of time, so let me say that I think I think you would find a great deal of correspondence with your ideas in Edward O. Wilson. I think the only thing that Edward O. Wilson would like to say, I can't speak for him, of course, but I think what he would like to say in response to that, if we could have invited him in to talk with the class, I think what he would have said, what he would like to say, is that it's a legitimate question whether we can do this, but it's an unanswerable question right now. It's right in the middle of the battle between the exemptionalists and the environmentalists and while he comes down on the environmental side, predominantly because he realizes that there is no second chance. If you burn yourself off the planet, the planet's gone. You, you, you can't, it's not like a Petri dish where you can throw one Petri dish out and get another Petri dish and start over again. But he would think, I think he would say, that your, that your points are, are well taken and unresolvable at the current at the current state whether the, the real issue is whether we are going to have enough time you said that in enough time we will be able to sort this out the question is where is the delicate balance between letting nature make many of these decisions by itself that has been doing as it has been doing for millions of years or are we going to start interve- start intervening and in making those decisions for nature and the real question is at what point in time will we be wise enough to know how much we can intervene and how much we really need to lay off? He doesn't know the answer. And the thing that's so pregnant with regard to this book, David Brin's book, The Uplift War, is it directly raises the issue of just because we are capable, what are the implications? We want to see the gorillas, the garthlings, uplifted. We want to see the chimps uplifted but what happens when we make mistakes and we uplift or we cause genetic changes in species that will that end up wiping out an entire planet causing major destruction at what point are we going to be able to say that we can do this with great certainty without making the mistakes these are issues that David Brin is addressing profoundly relevant to our current debate in our society of these issues anyway I Keep in mind Edward O. Wilson. It's a, he's a very powerful thinker that is speaking directly to these ideas. Okay, now what we're reading for Thursday, and try to get a couple hundred pages into it, Darwin's Radio by Greg Baer. By the way, we're still with evolution. We're still talking evolution with, with uh, Darwin's Radio. Okay, so we're still in that theme.